with great song for our times. Um, that would be a great song to take the lyrics home with you and look over those throughout the week this week. Uh, what an encouraging, appropriate thing to sing for yep. us this morning. You can turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 again this week. I don't know if, if someone asked you, what is the most disturbing and unsettling chapter in the Bible? Maybe you've never thought of that. Well, I don't know what you would say, but I know what I would say. I would say Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, that's probably not been on the front of your reading list recently. And you can go and read it this afternoon if you're up for it. But if you've never read Ezekiel 16 before, let me give you an overview. God is speaking through the prophet to the nation of Israel, and he describes the nation of Israel as a newborn child who has been left in an open field. The umbilical cord is still attached, and the child has been thrown out into the open field, left to die, and God passes by and finds this child, cleans her up, and clothes her. And in the chapter, eventually the child grows up, and as the child grows up and reaches adulthood, God himself brings this child whom he has saved from death into a marriage covenant with him. And he brings this child, the nation of Israel, into a marriage covenant with him, and then he showers gifts upon her and loves her with exclusive and devoted love. He provides for her. He loves her with affection and love. And the chapter goes on to describe in graphic and heart-wrenching detail the way that even though this marriage covenant has been entered into, Israel takes the very gifts that God has given to her and pursues other lovers with those gifts. Now, I say it's an unsettling chapter because it is, and it's very easy to read that chapter, which is quite long, and read about Israel's spiritual adultery and Israel's pursuit of idols and to be horrified by it. And we should be. I mean, we should read that, and our stomachs should turn with the nature of Israel's spiritual adultery. But the thing is, is James is going to point out in our chapter today that we very often do the same thing that Israel did to the Lord. God has given you and I this unbelievable ability to want things, right? To desire things and to be motivated to pursue different things in our lives. And those desires are intended, are meant to be aimed at God. They're meant to be spent on Him and drawn to Him alone. And as our desires are drawn to Him, they're meant to be used out of the overflow of love for Him in our love for one another, loving God and loving others. But often, instead, our desires are self-focused and self-centered, and we use the very gifts that God has given us on ourselves rather than on Him. 
Now in James 4, we learned last week about our desires and being able to accurately diagnose them and, and figure out what they're drawn to and attracted to is necessary for our growth in wisdom. And wisdom is necessary for our growth towards spiritual wholeness and spiritual maturity. You can't grow to spiritual wholeness if you can't have wisdom, and you can't have wisdom if you don't diagnose your desires and know what you're drawn to and motivated by. So in James 4, verses 1 to 10, which we started last week, James is teaching us how to acquire wisdom. And he's teaching us specifically how to acquire wisdom because in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, he has described wisdom from above to us. He told us what it looks like, and now he's teaching us how to acquire it. A special guest this morning. <laughs> Lovely. One of the joys of meeting outside, right? So James 3, 13 to 18, he describes wisdom from above. James 4, 1 to 10, he says, okay, now here's how you acquire that. And that's what we're looking at in this section of Scripture. Three steps to acquire wisdom from above. The first one of those we looked at last week is to diagnose your desires. You have to be able to look at your own want-tos and your own passions and your own desires and figure out what they're drawn to. If you go back to James chapter 3 and verse 18, you can see that one of the clearest signs of wisdom from above is pursuing peace in all of our relationships. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in order to intentionally pursue peace with one another, we have to be able to figure out where our conflict is coming from. And that's what James goes into in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Look there. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There will be fights and quarrels, but we have to know where it comes from. As we're pursuing peace, it won't always go well. So where do these fights and conflicts come from? The rest of verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, which is the end result of wanting something. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The cause of conflict, every single time there's conflict, it's because of our passions, our desires, and our covetousness. We're wanting something that we cannot obtain, and so we, we fight for it. And James says to help us diagnose those desires and where they're coming from, we need to take those to the Lord. And this is what he describes at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We don't bring our desires to the Lord. We don't talk to Him about those things. And so our desires are not conformed to what He wants for us. So much of the time our desires are aimed at the wrong things. And James wants us to be able to diagnose those wrong desires and to take them very, very seriously. And that's what he's going to get into in the second section, the second step to acquire heavenly wisdom. This is in verses 4 to 6, and this is where we'll be today. So we have to diagnose our desires, figure out where our desires are coming from, and then in verses 4 to 6, the second step is to reject spiritual adultery. That's adultery with an A. Reject spiritual adultery. Diagnose your desires and then reject 
spiritual adultery. So verse 4 flows from verses 1 to 3, right? It's kind of abrupt. You'll see in a second in verse 4, but it flows from verses 1 to 3. And James is quite straightforward here. He's not messing around. He takes our passions and our desires seriously. I mean, what does it say about us when our desires, given by God, are aimed at self? And we want to promote self, and we want to exalt self. What does that say about us? Now, I know we all have a lot of different desires, and you probably, hopefully this past week, plugged some of those into the steps that I gave you from verses 1 to 3 last week. But as you're thinking about all the different wants that you have, not all of them are wrong, not all of them are bad, but there will be a sort of controlling desire in your life, something that defines who you are, something that you are passionate about, that you want more than anything else. What gets you motivated when you get up in the morning? What drives you as a person? I would call that your controlling desire, and you act and live out of that controlling desire. And James would say, if something other than God has become your defining desire, if it is what controls you, it is what drives you in the morning, it's your defining motivation, then James would say the words that he uses in verse 4. Look there. You, adulterous, people. This is true of you. You have become like Israel in the Old Testament. Now we talked about Ezekiel 16, which I would encourage you to go back and read later. That picture of Israel as God's wife, God as her husband. But that's not the only place that image is used in the Old Testament. I mean, it is everywhere. The whole book of Hosea is about that particular relationship. And in the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament is that God gives Israel his love and affection and devotion, and Israel takes that and turns from him and pursues false gods, pursues the worship of other gods. Israel's controlling desire, what made her tick, what drove her to action, was for those other gods. And so she was committing spiritual adultery by that. Now, James uses this accusation here because these believers, some of them, were pursuing worldly, self-centered desires. They had adopted the affections and the loves and the motivations of the world around them, and they were pursuing the same things as the world. Look at the rest of verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with, with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the thing about your passions and your desires and your controlling desire. You can't have it both ways. I can't have it both ways. You cannot say you're pursuing God and yet be a friend of the world and pursue the same motivations and the same desires as the world. So let me give you a couple of examples. If your controlling desire in life, and sometimes this is hard to nail down, is security and comfort. I just want to be at ease. I just want to be comfortable. Then you will fight for that 
want to, that desire. And you will use people to get comfort. And you will take the gifts of God and you will twist them and you will turn them in on yourself rather than in worship to Him. And you will pursue that idol of comfort to the expense of your relationship with God. Take the desire for power or control. Very common motivation and desire in people. If you want power and control more than anything else, then you are a friend of the world. You are wanting the same things the world wants. And when that happens, you have placed yourself in the position of an enemy of God. You're no longer a friend of God, but you're an enemy of God. I mean, that's exactly what James describes in verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, friendship is built on mutual love and affection. A friend is someone who you're going the same direction with. You're walking along life's road together. And you like the same things, maybe the same hobbies. You have some of the same passions, the same affections. To be a friend of the world is to want the same things as the world. It's about your desires. First John chapter 2 describes this to us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... So he's going to tell us what makes up this worldliness, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so you can see that John centers worldliness in our passions, in our desires. And you can't have the same passions as the culture around you and claim to be a friend of God. Matthew 6 and verse 24 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it quite clear you can't have two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money in this particular context, but the principle, of course, is much broader. You can't love the approval of the world and long to be close and friends with God. And James explains explains why that is the case in verse 5. Or, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, obviously, you can see in this verse that James is talking about something in the Old Testament. I mean, he says, the Scripture says this. And so, it's easy to sort of go back and look for this quote in the Old Testament, but unfortunately you won't find it there. You're not going to find a particular verse of Scripture that says this exact thing. What James is doing here is not quoting a single verse. He's talking about an entire theme in the Old Testament, a dominant theme there. And we've already talked about this theme. The theme is this. God has given us a human spirit. And he has made us creatures who desire, who want, who love. Our hearts are love pumps in many ways, and you can't turn them off. They continue to want and want and want. You can't stop it. 
And God has made us that way. And then God jealously wants our complete and total devotion and love. He has designed us to give him our total devotion and love. That's what James is saying here. The Old Testament teaches that truth. Now, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Everything about you is aimed at Him, all of your affection and love. What's the first of the Ten Commandments that God gives to Israel? You shall have no other gods before me. I need to be the exclusive devotion of your heart. Why does God say that to them? Why can he make that claim to them? What authority and what right does he have to desire and to want and to command them to give him the exclusive devotion of their hearts? Well, if you go back up one verse in Exodus 20, listen to what God says. This is how he starts the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so God can make this exclusive claim of Israel because he created Israel. He's the Lord God, the creator God, and he redeemed Israel. He brought them out of slavery. And so he can claim their exclusive loyalty and he has every right to do that. And you know what? The same thing is true for anyone here this morning who claims to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God created you. He gave you physical life. He sustains your physical life this morning. Every beat of your heart happens because he is holding it together. And if you're a believer this morning, he gave you spiritual life. He brought you from the dead to new life. And so he demands that all of your love and affection be devoted entirely to him, that he would be the controlling desire of your heart. Everything else has to take second place. But that's a high demand, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's really hard. And I would say it's not just hard, it's impossible. You can't do that on your own. You and I have been born into this world fallen, broken. So you and I are born twisted and bent out of shape and sinful, and we don't come into this world wanting God more than anything. We don't spend our lives naturally in loyalty to Him, in submission to Him. Instead, you and I are born like the nation of Israel. We are professionals at taking the gifts that God gives to us and turning those gifts on ourselves and thinking we're the ones that gave those gifts to us. I have this intellect because, well, I'm the one who cultivated it. I have this athletic prowess because I'm the one who developed this. We take the gifts that God has given to us and we pursue self and we pursue other lovers rather than God with those gifts. And so the man who is born with a talent for clear and compelling communication, the ability to write, he cultivates that talent and then he uses that gift 
to write and argue that the God who gave it to him does not exist. The woman who is born with a strong management ability and leadership skills uses that talent to work her way up the corporate ladder by crushing anyone in her path. She exploits and manipulates in order to rise to the top. Both of those people have taken a gift given by God and then they have used that gift to make much of themselves and to exalt themselves. And maybe those two examples don't fit you, but we are all born doing that. That is how we come into this world. The Bible is not shy in describing the human condition, the way that you and I are born. We come into this world as friends of the world and not friends of God. In fact, we come into this world friends of the world, and therefore we come as enemies of God. Listen to how Romans chapter 3 describes this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues, given by God, to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We come into this world not fearing God, not thinking that we are accountable to Him in rebellion against Him, and our controlling desires are hardly for His fame and His glory as they should be. In fact, they're for self. And it's all about me. I want self-glory and self-exaltation expressed in a thousand different ways in a thousand different people. We're puffed up in pride and arrogance, and so we fight for what we want for self. And so this is how we're born. And this is obviously a problem because to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And so we come to an impasse here. We don't even have the ability to correct our desires. God has created human beings with a spirit that is made to long for him and to desire him above all else but our hearts are bent out of shape and we want everything but Him. And this puts us in quite a predicament. Because this is not a God who is going to come crawling to us and beg us to come back to Him. In fact, He has an exclusive claim on our hearts and when we give our loyalty to anything or anyone other than Him, it is to slap the Creator God in the face and to invite His righteous judgment. And we're all born into this condition. Not a good place to be. But here's the, the amazing part about this, right? We're born in this condition as friends of the world and enemies of God with our desires turned inward to self and in all the wrong directions and judgment will fall 
for that cosmic treason, every one of us are responsible for the way our desires are aimed at the wrong things, for giving our love and affection to everyone else other than God. Judgment will fall, but God, by his grace, has placed that judgment on someone other than you. Look at James 4, in verse 6. But, in contrast to what James has just said, he's made us this way to desire and love, and we've given our love to a thousand other lovers, but he gives more grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. And what is the particular grace that God has given to us who are born friends of the world and deserving of eternal judgment? What is the grace that he has given to us? Listen to Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is the grace that he gives and gives and gives. God himself came to earth, was born a human being. He came and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Among us, God's creatures, God's creatures who had turned their backs on him and broken his commandments and whose desires were spent in all the wrong directions. Rebellion against him. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life that you and I should have lived with his affections and desires in all the right places. He lived the life that you and I needed to live to avoid judgment. He lived perfectly free from sin, and yet, despite that, he gave up his own life on the cross as our substitute. He died not for good people, not for people who just needed a little bit of a shove over the line. He died for the ungodly, the disloyal, and the spiritual adulterer. And then, after he died, he rose from the dead three days later and won the decisive victory over the powers of darkness. And death itself no longer has a claim unbelievers. And so what does all of this mean for us as you and I think about wisdom, right? It seems like we've gone pretty far afield from wisdom and acquiring wisdom this morning. Well, I want to address two groups and talk about the impact of what I've just described on those two groups. First of all, if you're here this morning and you are a friend of the world, and you're a friend of the world because you've never maybe heard this message before, or you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You've never let Christ cleanse you of your sins. Let me plead with you this morning to consider what I've just described. Look at the next words in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is proclaimed, is visible, is seen, available to all people, but only the humble receive it. There's a disposition that doesn't earn God's grace. It's not a a payment for his grace. But it puts you in a position where you can receive God's grace. The proud will not acknowledge their need for God's grace. They don't think they have a problem. They don't think they're in rebellion against him. They don't think they're deserving of judgment. They're only concerned about self and what they want and what they think is right about the world and their own self-assessment. The proud will not recognize their friendship with the world. They won't recognize the fact that they're enemies of God. And so they won't turn from their sin. They won't see the serious situation that their sin puts them in. And they certainly won't see God's wrath over their sin. So what does this look like? To not be proud, but to humbly come to Christ. To acknowledge your sin. Let me read you a little story that Jesus told from Luke 18. And I think this will make it clear. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Very confident in his righteousness, not acknowledging his need for God's forgiveness. But here's the rest of the story. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference in these two men is the humble recognition of sin and the humble recognition that they need God's grace. God does not shower his grace on those who don't think they need it. So I'll ask you this morning, do you view yourself as someone in need of God's grace because of your sin? So that's the first group. The second group would be those who are believers in Christ. Those who are believers in Christ, but you you struggle, just like I do. Right? Our desires often seem to be aimed in the wrong direction. It's a weird thing because we want to want God more than anything else, but functionally in daily life, that just seems to be a struggle day in and day out. I would love nothing more than single-hearted devotion to Christ and for all of my decisions and my thinking and my emotions to line up with that and fall in line and follow that devotion every single day. But man, there are so many obstacles to living 
devoted to Christ in that way. It's hard. And to all of you who feel like that, the same word in James 4, 6 comes to you. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is obviously a quote from the Old Testament. You can see it in brackets there, and if you look at your cross-references, you'll see that this is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34 in the Old Testament. Now, I think that's fascinating that James would quote from Proverbs chapter 3 here. Why? Well, I love Proverbs 3. That's not why James would quote from it. But this is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And I think it's delightful that he's gone back to this chapter because this chapter, right near the beginning of the book of Proverbs, is all about acquiring wisdom. And it's an encouragement and a motivation to acquire wisdom. The author is saying, look, you need to pursue wisdom with everything you have. And so James quotes from this chapter because that's his goal here too. He knows that Proverbs has the same mission in mind. James wants believers to pursue wisdom, and that pursuit requires the rejection of spiritual adultery. And that rejection has to come in humility. And that's the key part here. Even in the Christian life, especially in the Christian life, God's grace is not earned. You don't get God to like you more this week because you're a little more humble. It doesn't work like that. God's not going to be more delighted with you this week because you put on humility. But here's what does happen. Humility is the disposition necessary for you and I to recognize the grace that is already there. James 4, 6 is quite clear. He gives more grace. God is overflowing with grace and kindness to us in our Christian lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I will not see that grace if I'm proud and arrogant, if I think I've got it together. I will only see that grace. I will only delight in that grace and receive that grace if I recognize my brokenness and my sinfulness and my divided loyalty, even as a believer. And so what this, what this quote here does, and I think this quote is sort of the linchpin of this whole section, this quote brings together the pursuit of wisdom, which is what James has been all about, in the absolute necessity of humble submission to God. To be a wise person, you have to recognize your sin and humbly submit to God in repentance for that sin. God stands ready to give and to give and to give and to shower his grace on you. But he's not going to allow us to trample on that grace by pursuing our own self-centered desires, right? I mean, that's exactly the point of verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Proud people will not recognize grace. They won't think they need it because they don't think they've done anything wrong. They don't think they're sinners. To be proud is to imagine that you know best all the time. It's to have an exaggerated opinion 
of yourself. It's to downplay the importance of God's word and his commands, maybe not overtly, but subtly, in the way you approach them and obey them. You cannot be proud and be a friend of God. Friendship with God requires us to be properly related to him. And the way to be properly related to him is to recognize that he's the creator, we are the creatures. He's the redeemer, we are those who have been redeemed. And to come to him in humble submission to him. So, let me bring all this back together. To acquire wisdom, which is what we're after in this passage, we have to be attuned to our desires, to understand what's motivating us and be able to diagnose them. Then, when we recognize desires that are aimed at something other than God, then we reject spiritual adultery and we turn in humble submission to Him and we seek His face. Wisdom requires dropping the proud and arrogant facade that we are tempted to carry. Recognize God as the creator and as the redeemer and as the one who has given us spiritual life. And this requires daily repentance. And that's what we're going to look at next week as we finish this section up. What does this process of repentance look like? And why is it so necessary that believers quickly and readily repent of their sins throughout their lives in order to acquire wisdom? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word this morning. Oh, man, we, need, we need this. We need to recognize our desires and we need to come to you in humble submission, Lord. Push down our pride. Push down our arrogance. Help us to just come to you in humility, out of a desire to draw near to you, as we'll see in this next section. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for what he's done for us. Pray that that would be our motivation this coming week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.